0: sorry, just a second. I'm going to yell at my dog. Hey, cut it out. Rupert. He's like digging a hole in the, in the floor upstairs. (laughs) Hi everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Joining us uh, today uh, for his second time on the show, I think the first time was, well, almost two years ago now. Or about at least a year and a half ago is uh, founder of Precision Hydration, Andy Blow. And uh, as we welcome Andy back to the show, uh, I asked him if there was anything else that he wanted me to convey to you, our listening audience. Uh, and uh, the thing that that he came back to me with, which I think is super valuable, is the fact that uh, while he definitely comes at hydration um, from uh, a scientific lens, he's also someone who is a you know who still competes in uh, in endurance sport, and so that gives him kind of a, you know, a more, maybe a more broader look at what's involved in the, uh, in the hydration picture, as far as helping endurance athletes do what endurance athletes do. So with that little preamble, Andy, thank you so much for taking the time and coming back to the show. And, uh, I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation we're going to have today.
1: Yeah. Good, good to be back. Thanks for the invite again
0: yeah absolutely and I think uh the the timing for it is right right I mean we're I don't know about you guys in Europe but I mean well I've seen some some news items, but uh certainly uh we in North America, especially the western part of North America, we're experiencing. Kind of like the, a record-breaking summer in terms of temperature. Um, Toronto, uh, Ontario, is kind of you know doing its normal Toronto, Ontario thing. It's maybe a little bit wetter this year, and uh, but there have certainly been some hot and humid days. And um, Andy, we just had on the show uh, someone you know. Um, uh, that's uh, Mario Schmidt Wendling from uh, Sisu in Germany. Yep. And he talked about some of the research that he has done in uh, in heat adaptation and uh, and sodium and hydration, of course, which play a key role in that. Um, and so we're, it's almost like an ad hoc, you know, heat adaptation hydration little series that we're doing on endurance innovation. So this is very very well timed.
1: Yeah, yeah, Mario's a, a good guy for that sort of stuff. I visited him probably three or four years ago in Germany now, because he does some of the precision hydration sweat testing over there and obviously looks after some really top Ironman athletes and yeah, certainly knows his stuff. Mm -hmm. And like, like you in North America, we've, we've not been having record breaking temperatures, but we've had some pretty hot weather here for us lately. Um, it's actually, as I sit here today, it's chucking it down with rain outside, which is more standard, but we have (laughs) seen, you know, like 30 Celsius in the last couple of weeks and, Definitely, we've noticed a, a lot of people inquiring about sweat testing, hydration services, and that as as happens when the temperature spikes.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. That makes that makes a ton of sense. And I think the more we, um, you know, the more, and I say we kind of <laughs> roughly like we talk about a uh, a little bit. And of course, you guys, this is this is what you do. This is your bread and butter. But the more that that people understand the value of of getting it right, I think nutrition has sort of penetrated people's consciousness enough that they start to take it really seriously, especially for long course mm. um, but hydration still feels like it's a little bit more of an ad hoc approach, yeah you know you kind of there's lots of different different theories about how to do it, and there's lots of products out on the market and uh and people you know kind of take things almost yeah willy-nilly and so i think it is it definitely bears having this conversation because uh you know hot long races uh if you if you don't get hydration right you can do everything else correctly and this is what mario was saying uh, on our chat last week and i totally agree if you do everything else correctly you're still not gonna you're still gonna have a bad day potentially
1: yeah absolutely they call in in triathlon long course they call it the fourth discipline you know the hydration and nutrition Mm -hmm. i think or the nutrition the hydration and fueling and i think that's very very true and obviously you've you've read some of our stuff in the past and um, we've talked before but we've we've very much so over the last few years been crystallizing this idea of communicating the three levers concept to athletes which is which is basically that when you're doing a long And especially a hot endurance race, there are basically three things slash I would say, kind of four things that you really need to get right. Um, And the the major three are: you need to know how much fluid, or you need to be able to manage your fluid intake. You need to manage your electrolyte sodium intake, and you need to manage your carbohydrate intake. And you need to know what those numbers are that you roughly need to hit, so that you can then dynamically manage them based on how you feel on the day. And the fourth one that 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 intersects with those is you've got to get your pacing right For sure. because you can definitely you can definitely have nutritional problems which are related to pacing more than what your intake is if you sort I mean so you know you it's it's really easy as we all know to go off like a, a bat out of hell in a, a long hot race but you burn more energy doing that you sweat more you get to replace less and you dig yourself a pretty deep hole that no matter of no no you can't climb out of very easily so there's but those those three things i reckon if if more endurance athletes really knew those numbers for themselves we'd see a lot less dnfs and a lot less disappointed people who haven't raced to their potential at the end of a race
0: yeah. Um that's a that's a really terrific introduction into the conversation I think today Andy. Um and so let's spend a little bit of time talking about the three levers and then maybe at the end we can circle back to the intensity piece which I think is very important um for for a number of reasons and it is it is something that you know sort of uh maybe colors how we think about the first three. Uh, the main three levers. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you mentioned uh hydration, uh, sodium, or you mentioned fluid, sodium, and uh, and fuel. Let's start with uh, let's start with uh, f- uh, liquid hydration. Actual the water intake that you uh, that you have to imbibe when you're when you're doing a long course or really any you know endurance activity. Um, so the the kind of the question that's been coming up. And uh, in my coaching practice and something that I've uh, heard folks speak to on various podcasts is what is the ceiling? And uh, rather, actually, before we before we get there, how do we think about how much we want to be drinking based on how much uh, water we're losing in an endurance event? What's the framework from a precision hydration perspective?
1: yeah this is this is where it, it's really tricky to know where to start in some ways because okay. as you pointed out, there's a lot of confusion around how much people should drink during different events and activities, and that's because the confusion arises from a number of reasons one of which is just sort of a, a whole ton of information conflicting information in in the on the internet in the in the marketplace of sports nutrition if you like and, and advice. Mm-hmm. And when people hear loads of conflicting information, quite often a valid response is to kind of switch off their ears and just think, I'll, 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 I'll just do what I feel, you know. And because if if you keep hearing things which which directly oppose, you know, like drink to a plan, drink as much as you can, drink to thirst, don't do this, don't you don't need to drink. To, you know to a plan and there's all this confusing information the the way that a lot of people handle it is they go well, i'm not going to really engage with that i'm just going to you know see how it goes on the day which yep. is which is kind of an understandable response but not necessarily the most productive one and then layered on top of that you've got the the real problem i think is that there is no sound biteable one size fits all answer for this you know is it, there are too many variables. So you've got individual variables, you've got things like how much you sweat as an individual, what intensity you're gonna go at, what your sweat composition is, etc. And then you've got situational environmental variables, how long is the race, um, what are the what are the weather conditions, because the same race in cold conditions will warrant a very different approach hydration wise to this to an identical race in extremely hot and humid conditions. Hmm. We know of to put it up in perspective, we know of athletes who would drink as little as two or 300 milliliters per hour on average through a long but cold Ironman race compared with one, 1. 1.2 litres an hour over the course of a long, hot and humid Ironman race. And for the so, same athlete? For the same person. So huh, okay. there's a huge difference in those numbers. And what that boils down to is relatively simple in one respect to get your head around it's obviously down to how much you sweat Mm -hmm. because if as you sweat more you need to replace more but that relationship isn't entirely linear because at low levels of sweat loss you can go for many hours and only accumulate you can accumulate a small deficit of fluid that causes you no problems at all conversely in the heat you can be going for just two or three hours and you can accumulate a a fluid and electrolyte loss that is so catastrophic it can leave you in a lot of trouble in a very relatively short amount of time we're actually working with a fascinating athlete at the moment who's not in endurance sports but who play who's a professional tennis player on the atp tour who can we've measured him accurately at sweating at well over four liters an hour Whoa. So I mean in the gut this is a big guy. This is a guy yeah. who's well in the sure. high six six feet and several inches tall and has a high work rate. But he's having to drink he's having to drink two litres or two point two litres per hour during hot and humid tennis matches and yet is still coming off the court significantly dehydrated unable to pee for many hours afterwards and then having to get up and do the same thing the next day and that for me has been an eye-opener because although we've had people in the past who are more towards that end of the spectrum a typical piece of advice for an endurance athlete would be that once you start hitting around one liter like 34 ounces of fluid per hour you're kind of Getting towards the upper ceiling of what's sensible and tolerable. Consumption, you mean, right? People. Not sweat rate. Yeah, consumption. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Sorry. So, yeah, sweat. No sweat rates. We've we've routinely seen Ironman athletes with sweat rates of two liters an hour, and mm-hmm. you know 60, 64, 68 ounces an hour. But for a lot of people, you know, the kind of ballpark figure we would we would quote as being a high level of fluid intake is is one liter an hour. But but and I think that holds true for. For the vast majority of athletes but there are there is certainly a subset there's certainly some people who can and need can take in and need more because they've got vastly higher sweat rates and and, and really what that then becomes is a bit of a challenge of like well how much can you gut process how much can you consume and absorb freely uh, and that right. that becomes something which maybe requires a bit of training and also a lot of experimentation trial and error
0: Sure. Oh so okay Andy you've outlined a complex problem right and which is uh we we yeah. kind of like complex problems on the show because they're the kind of the most fun ones to solve. So let's uh let's kind of dig in into this one. Uh so it sounds like there are to me, it, it sounds like there are two potentially measured variables, right? So the first one uh, is how much you sweat, and of course, as you as yeah. you pointed out, it, it changes based on intensity and conditions. And then, and when I say how much you sweat, I'm talking about volume of sweat loss. Yeah. Uh, and then, how much can you can you take in, and should you take in? So let's start with the first: uh, how much do you sweat? And um, we've had Mario talk about this, and we've had other guests talk about this. But just very quickly, if you can just uh, summarize the easiest way to, for an athlete at home uh, to measure his or her sweat rate? And, and then we can get into the limitations of, of that kind of technique.
1: Sure. So to measure your sweat rate, the, uh, the easiest reliable way is to weigh yourself before a training session, weigh yourself mm-hmm. after the, the training session, having towed down, taking into account how much fluid you've drunk, Mm-hmm. And looking at those numbers and the difference in those numbers will be in, in kilos will equate to litres of sweat lost. So in very simple terms, if you do one hour on the bike, you started off at 79 kilos, you didn't drink anything and you ended up at 78 kilos, you will have lost approximately one litre of sweat. Right. And, and we've, we've got a spreadsheet on our website that you can download for free. And I can give you that link for the show notes so that people can just punch their numbers into that. Yes, please. And collect data on a number of different training sessions and if you do that over a number of sessions at different intensities in different environments you do get a pretty good handle fairly quickly on what your sweat rate looks like in different conditions and in order to help people calibrate their thinking i would say that if it's warm and you're working quite hard something around the sweat rate of half a litre per hour would be considered quite low for an endurance athlete Mm -hmm. and something up at two to two and a half litres would be considered pretty high the majority of people are probably going to come in somewhere around that kind of one to 1.2, 1.3 liters an hour when they're working hard in Mm -hmm. warm conditions in my experience. So, so that's sort of like, yeah, that's it. That's a decent average.
0: Is there any correlation? I mean, I encourage everyone to do this test. It's also very straightforward. All you need is a, you know, look, a bathroom scale and a towel and a tur- turbo trainer, right? Or, or your run outside. Um, is there any correlation between sweat rate and uh, other than we, we mentioned, obviously, temperature and, uh, and intensity, but what about body size? Do bigger people sweat more?
1: Generally speaking, yes, because they've got bigger muscle mass. So they're mm-hmm. going to generate more heat, which is going to need dispelling up bigger body surface area, so yeah. you know there'll be an overlap you get some small people especially if they're very fit and very highly aerobically trained that will sweat a lot so fifty fifty five 55 kilo marathon runners can sweat two and a half liters an hour if they're running oh, 40 okay. a mile you yeah know. so there there's definitely exceptions but if you took you would you would imagine that the highest sweat rates are going to be seen from the largest individuals and vice versa
0: let's talk about confounding factor so we we mentioned intensity and we mentioned heat and then i i imagine that um that you can get around those as you as you suggested by doing tests in different conditions and at different intensities but what about duration so i i only clued into this uh, after listening to you speak to michael erickson on that triathlon show a couple of weeks back yeah. um, and you mentioned that that sweat rates aren't static even for the same duration or even excuse me even for the same um intensity and conditions over the course of yeah. a long uh training bout that that you know the the sweat rate is not static. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: yeah, I think there's this, there's a bit of confusion where people think that if you take a snapshot of a sweat rate, if you ride at two hundred watts on your trainer for an hour and you sweat one liter an hour, then you'll always sweat at that rate at that intensity and mm-hmm. whilst it, it it will probably be that you sweat at when all other things are equal, you sweat at roughly that rate. The body is very dynamic in the way it manages homeostasis, and the reason you sweat is to manage your core temperature. So small changes in your core temperature might uprate or downrate your sweat rate. As you get deeper into a really long endurance event, then it's it's not outrageous to think that the body's going to do things like regulate sweat rate based on your level of hydration based on your level of intensity changing the conditions are always going to be changing because when you're for instance riding up a hill and you've got a lot of air uh, not a lot of airflow you're Mm. going to cool less effectively than when you're riding down a hill and you've got tons of airflow you're obviously cooler so maybe you can sweat less so i think that you're dealing with an ever dynamic picture and averages are useful but but sweat rate is going to modulate over the course of a race. If you're doing the Hawaii Ironman, for example, if you, if you swim reasonably well, you get out of the swim pretty early in the morning Mm -hmm. and it's hot, but not super hot. But by the time you get off the bike, it can be 10 degrees warmer.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So clearly your sweat rate is going to change, but also maybe your, the intensity you're riding at has changed a bit as well. And We, I don't think the body often we, when we oversimplify these mechanistic models about how much you sweat and how much you should drink and things are useful to give a framework, but they, they miss tons of nuance, you know, in, in that the human body is incredibly adept at like managing its own resources and you will undoubtedly start to sweat less as you become progressively more dehydrated because the body wants to hold on to more fluid For sure. it'll also because as you dehydrate your blood volume contracts and you're going to slow down because the body's going to need to slow you down which then results in a lower sweat rate so all the time the body is screaming at you as you know when you're doing an endurance <laughs> event to stop yep. slow you know that's you're getting yep. all these signals because the body knows that you're pushing it to a limit which is a little bit if it carries on like that indefinitely is obviously dangerous so i think i think you've got to just take a view that that you're dealing with a moving picture the whole time and that's where this kind of hybrid approach of having a bit of knowledge about your sweat rates and the duration and what your likely fluid losses are going to be is important but you also need to take a healthy dollop of common sense and listening to your body and like if you know that's how you start to determine how much you're going to drink because Mm -hmm. you might say and, and you get better at this with experience. So in cool conditions, you might say, well, I know that generally speaking, if I drink one bottle, one 500ml bottle per hour in these kind of conditions, usually I'm feeling pretty good. I'm not peeing too much and life seems to be good. But if it gets substantially hotter and more humid, I might need to go up 1.5 bottles, two bottles an hour. And you only kind of, you build you build up experience on that over weeks and years But you can also have this pre-existing framework of knowing what's reasonable for other people, what's reasonable for you based on your sweat rate, and all of that information needs synthesizing and putting together. Mm -hmm. And you end up with what I would determine to be like a flexible plan. So a plan that you go into the race with some guardrails. I think my lower amount of fluid in this race is probably going to be X, but my upper limit is probably more like Y and then and then you're constantly then evaluating and making decisions on whether you're upping or reducing your fluid intake based on things like am i peeing more than i expected to be have i got fluid sloshing around in my stomach does it basically feel like i'm overdoing the fluids if it does the sensible thing to do is 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 back off right and i've been in there in races when i've been in hot long races i did a race in nice in about 2003 triathlon world championships and it was hot and i was so convinced at the time that dehydration was going to be my problem that even when i was drinking and peeing and drinking i just kept doubling down and making the problem worse by drinking right. more because i'd got it in my head that i probably couldn't drink enough and i and i look back at it all the time now and i think wouldn't it have just been a smart thing to do to sort of brought it back the other way but it was just a good example to me of how the mantras that you tell yourself before the race and the sort of mindset that you get into is very important. I think the mindset around hydration is knowing the the rough upper and lower limits that might work for you in the given conditions. Yep. And then having the peace, having the presence of mind to think about how you're feeling as you go and having the balls to sort of adjust your strategy
0: based on that feedback. For sure. You know what I really love about that, and is that, is that, I think all too often especially the people that that gravitate to shows like like this I think and and folks that I coach all too often they they want a clear answer that is guided by the you know admittedly very good sports science that we that we have access to uh, and the devices, the plethora of devices or, or analyses that we have access to, and they just, they just want an answer, you know, they want an answer and they yeah. want a plan. And I, I understand the need, the, the desire for this. I think I, I feel it too, yeah. but the more we learn and the more, you know, the more I learn, let me put it that way. The more I learn about, um, you know, the, this complex world that we try to do our best in uh, the more kind of, I appreciate that there is no right answer and that there is that. Everything that we see on our garmin displays and our you know in our training peaks logs it has to be. Uh, you know, mediated and, and put into context with with perceived exertion, with how we feel, and that is a that is a terrifically useful takeaway for almost everything. I don't care what you know if you're talking about heart rate or power, hydration or aerodynamics. Like a lot of that stuff, maybe not aerodynamics so much, but a lot of that stuff is is uh has to has to be put into context. So I think that's a really useful takeaway, listeners, and I think that one's that one's that one's a keeper. But. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about that, you know, perception side of uh, of the hydration story. So you mentioned, uh, you know, frequency of urination, and you mentioned the, the sloshiness in your stomach. Um, and again, this is this is I'm trying to do what I said is very difficult to do is make a pl- make a strict yeah. plan. But what are you looking out for in terms of uh, when you are doing, let's say, like a race, or you're doing a, a race simulation? So you're doing hope maybe race conditions, race power, r- close to race duration if it's very long course. Um, w- in terms of let's say a frequency of urination. What is normal on the bike in an Ironman? What are you trying to see? And if you're outside of this normal, then maybe you're going too much or not enough.
1: I, I'd say on the Ironman, in most circumstances, probably, it's probably good to pee at least once. Okay. Possibly twice. Okay. There's a lot of athletes that don't pee at all during an Ironman. And, and there's there's some that pee multiple times. But I always think that that once on the bike is just a good sign that you've probably taken on enough fluid mm-hmm. and your body's got enough to spare that it can dump a little bit. But if you're peeing, like I've had a cup, I've had an Ironman race before I probably peed like four or five times on the bike. And that was always correlated with just feeling crappy. Yeah. It was always just like, there's something not right. There's something out of whack there. Um, so, so that would be it. I, I think I've seen with more elite athletes who tread the fine line, maybe peeing less, sometimes hmm. but it's it's hard to know whether that's kind of correlation or causation in terms of do they pee less because they're just going faster and sweating more and they can't keep up with their sweat rates or do they know their bodies better and they can tread that fine line more easily um it's it, it's something in that zone i would I would be you know gun to my head sort of thing that's what i'd say mm-hmm
0: and then you also mentioned if we can look at at intake you uh, you know you, you you talked about the the traditional ceiling being about a thousand milliliters and that's what mario uh shared with us uh, last week when we spoke with him and that's what i remember seeing in in literature as being kind of the recommended maximum but then you said yeah. you know you mentioned folks drinking 1.2 1.5 even as much yeah. as two so then this is obviously for people who are you know who who sweat a lot who have those high sweat rates so if you're fairly confident uh uh, that you have a high sweat rate, or if you've you know you've tested it, or for example, you drink your thousand milliliters and you still feel dehydrated. Let's say you you know your temperature goes up and you're you know you're not peeing at all and you're clear signs of dehydration. Um, what's the what's the thinking on what the you know the maximum intake is? And uh, you mentioned training. Uh, talk us through that.
1: Yeah, so I think the the sort of thousand milliliters or liter an hour upper limit like you say it appears in the literature a little bit and and it correlates with studies that have looked at gastric emptying and and fluid uptake rates in in you know in groups of people it's an average figure but that that by its very nature a kind of average figure does suggest that there'll be a few outliers the outliers right. that i've tended to see and i've i've got no i'm crossing the line here into pure anecdote and no not anything approaching peer reviewed science is guys particularly guys it seems to be maybe that's just because i've worked with more male athletes but it's the guys with very high sweat rates who who've had that issue for years and have just learned to adapt by frank by just drinking more so we've seen a couple of riders tour de france type you know pro tour cyclists who who can for periods within the race for instance in the mountains when it's very hot drink three bidons an hour which is about 1.5 liters and they will they will hand on heart tell you that if they need to do that and i've got no reason to disbelieve them these are people who really know their bodies and know how many bottles they're taking from a car or whatever um i've seen ironman athletes drinking substantially more than that on the bike in kona in hot and humid conditions mm-hmm. and these again are people who just have either measured or anecdotally have extremely high sweat rates and To me, that sort of makes sense because if your body is upregulating its sweat rate, I'm sure there are ways in which it can upregulate the fluid uptake as well to match that. Because your body is all about, you know, like living to see another day, and if you're losing fluid at a rapid rate, then you can bet you, you you can bet your backside that your gut is going to respond in some way by trying to facilitate as much fluid uptake as possible. And with those athletes, we we often try to prioritize things like making sure they really do start drinking early in events so that the deficit, so any deficit their crew is minimized. We're mitigating deficit right from the word go. We put a lot of sodium in their drinks quite often to help with uptake and retention of fluid, as well as a little bit of glucose because that helps facilitate transport across the gut. Mm -hmm. And, And then we really just have to kind of like throw, throw everything at them and see, see how much, how how that can help the 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 danger of of and I think another reason why this thousand milliliters an hour sort of upper limit is quite useful for a lot of people to think about is that these the people who have more than that are the exception to the rule you know very much so they they're not the normal right. and there are penalties as you know from hypernatremia and over drinking is a thing and we don't what we don't want to do is put a message out there that actually like more is better when it comes to hydration yes. It's like more is better if you are losing a ton, you know,
0: so it's, uh, it sounds like it's not a, the thousand milliliters is not a hard upper limit. It is, it is, no. it, it can be trained. And to your point, I mean, I, I suspect that if, if the folks who are the big sweaters and who are, who have been able to push their, um, uh, fluid retention higher is because, you know, they keep training it. And as you say, the body adapts and just like, you know, adaptation to any kind of training or any kind of stimulus.
1: Well, there's kind of a mechanical side, isn't there? You stretch the gut, you stretch the stomach a little bit and you process a bit more. And then there's kind of the receptors in the gut and the- pathways through the gut that that can be upregulated but the the kind of extreme but silly example is what you see with this um in the u.s with this like competitive eating the nathan's hot dog championship <sighs> yeah right thing. you know these guys that that guy the other week just ate uh 76 hot dogs in 12 <laughs> minutes or something like that and it, the number goes up every year and and it does appear that <laughs> it's wild it is wild but it appears that these guys train their gut you know, to absorb more calories, and, and presumably similarly with fluids as well. Um, they they can eat, they can do these superhuman feats of eating. And when you watch, there's an ESPN documentary that I watched about it, and they just train progressively. You know, like an athlete does progressive overload. One yep. week you have ten hot dogs, then you have twelve, then you have fourteen. You know, and you you can, and by the end of it, you can do more. And and wow. it's kind of yeah, it's it's fairly it's fairly sort of. Fairly rudimentary in that regard, but but it does me it just show the body's ability to adapt.
0: That's true. We are we are built to, as you say, live another day in in you know the most efficient way possible, and that's uh it's remarkable that we can do that. I mean that's that's how humans can run an Ironman, you know, can 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 pr- yeah. do multi day ultra stage races. No other animals can do it. It's because we're, well, we're kind of messed in the head enough, I suppose. But also we we keep working at it slowly.
1: Definitely, one one thing I would point out is that I've definitely come across a handful of athletes for whom their sweat rate is so high that it it does become effectively like an achilles heel for racing in hot conditions and so there is there is a point at which there's a decoupling of you know some guys just sweat too much to succeed in kona for example or whatever and it doesn't it's not it's not we're not saying i I would never say to someone that it's like an impediment to them doing well because whenever you tell someone they can't do it if they're the right mindset of person it's probably just fuel to the fire but but there are a couple of guys that we've worked with who've done really well at Kona but they've won loads of other Ironmans and things like that but it's just the case that it just seems to be that extra stressor that they can't that it's it's too much for them to overcome in that race they just end up in a in a bad way and so I think that there's definitely there's definitely a kind of that there is a there is that there is that point at which Losses in terms of fluid and electrolytes are just too severe for your gut to cope with keeping up and therefore a decline in performance is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And for those people, unfortunately, it's just, it's just one of those things where like cooler, cooler races are where they're going to get the podiums.
0: For sure, yeah, and that's just that's just straight mathematics, right? Like you can, you, yeah. you know, even if your ceiling is, is is above nor is above average, and even if you're at like at a very high into you know, you can potentially handle quite a li- quite a lot of fluid if your sweat rate is is tremendous over you know the course of eight hours in that race. There's there's just going to come a point where you are going to lose you know performance because of dehydration. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about sodium because you mentioned it a couple yeah. of times um in in what we were talking about in fluid retention and how sodium does help um, absorption of fluids Uh, so let's talk about this this very important second lever Um, and then I'm gonna I want to start at the same place as where we started with uh, with hydration and that is uh, how do you know how much you need and then uh, how do you go about getting it in so let's start with how do you know how much you need
1: so sodium is one of those things that you can need a really wide range of depending on the event and your physiology Okay. And you, you can literally, I think, need zero sodium supplementation right through to probably, again, a, a rough upper ceiling, 1.5 grams, 1,500 milligrams per hour during a long hot event. We've seen athletes who routinely require that kind of level of supplementation to maintain their performance. So that's a really wide bandwidth, you know, sure. how much to take a lot and that's driven by two things fundamentally it's like sweat rate again because obviously it's, the sodium loss comes in through what's dissolved in your sweat and the more liters that you sweat the more sodium you lose but also the concentration of sweat and and as you know from what we do at ph we test the sodium content of sweat because that varies a lot from person to person so we've tested people who lose two or three hundred milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat and that makes mm-hmm. them quite well suited to racing in the heat, potentially in terms of Mm -hmm. that, that facet of their physiology, right through to people like me who lose 18, 1900 milligrams of sodium per litre and a a few outliers. So we've seen people over 2000 milligrams per litre. And typically those folk, those of us who are up at the higher end, we're the folks that struggle a bit when it gets really hot, because unless you know to replace a lot of sodium with the fluids that you're taking on, you end up in a situation where you progressively dilute your blood sodium levels. And that that can cause all sorts of problems. Hypernatremia is the the, the extreme end of that. When you really dilute your, your sodium levels too low, and that can be catastrophic. That can kill you if it gets really extreme.
0: Yep. Um, yeah. You, you but, hear and, of and, cases every every year. There's there's one or two folks yeah. who, who do suffer from it. Yeah, in races.
1: And quite often to be clear, it's not it's not always primarily driven by how much sodium they lose in their sweat. You know, you can get hypernatremia just by over drinking and that's the most common form of it. But mm-hmm. it it also is a pretty obvious statement to make that you are more you are more likely to dilute your blood down if you're losing sodium at a very high rate sure. as well. We 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 actually collaborated with a doctor, a couple of doctors on a paper to sort of demonstrate this because people with cystic fibrosis quite often Get hypernatremia if they do manual work in the heat and drink too much water and Gatorade and that sort of thing, and and they and people with CF have incredibly salty sweat. Okay, and then we we sort of did a case study of an athlete and an Ironman who doesn't have CF but has very salty sweat and had all the same symptoms as someone who had CF who got
0: who got um, hyponatremia. So when you say people overdrink, you mean they they drink too much fluid without the requisite concentration of, of sodium in it. So it's not just like Correct. a total volume of fluid, yeah. it's just the fluid is too dilute from a, a sodium perspective.
1: Yeah, because your blood is 3,600 milligrams of sodium or thereabouts in concentration. So any drink you have, even a really strong electrolyte drink, yeah, is that's... hypotonic, it's lower in sodium. So you, whenever you drink, uh, even if you drink a strong rehydration drink, you're net, you're taking on net more fluid than sodium so you're going to dilute a little bit but obviously the higher the concentration of sodium you put in the drink the less that dilution happens
2: mm-hmm. so
0: Makes sense.
1: There's, there's there's kind of a happy medium of what what you can get in what's upsets your stomach we found our strongest drink is 1500 milligrams of sodium per liter because that's okay. kind of nearing the ceiling of what's what can taste okay and what what an athlete needs you know if they're sweating a lot um, but a regular a regular sports drink is only about four or five hundred milligrams a liter, so that you can dilute yourself with one of those relatively easily if you're a heavy
0: sweater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Based on if you, yeah, if the if your average is somewhere in the thousand range. So let's yeah. uh, let's go back to uh, the same question I asked about um, about uh, sweat rate. Uh, let's talk about how do you find out what your, uh, what your sweat concentration looks like? And, uh, I know you guys do a method, so that, uh, please talk about yours, but also if there are any others that are, uh, more, you know, at home kind of, uh, guesstimates.
1: Yeah, well, the 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 quick backstory though is when I was doing Ironman seriously, I struggled in the heat with sodium loss, and it was a a doctor friend of mine said, "Look, they do this sweat test for cystic fibrosis where they can take a sweat sample and measure it and tell you how much salt you're losing. I think you'll be really high." So I trundled off to the hospital with him, had a test. He managed to get me a test, and sure enough, his prediction was true. My sweat sodium was super high. That was mm-hmm. what kickstarted, you know, the interest in this, and eventually the company Precision Hydration. But so we we offer this sweat test now, where you can come and see us, or we've got different places around the world. I know you've seen Jason in Toronto, who's got a, a mm-hmm. sweat testing machine. You can have a sweat sample taken at rest, and we can analyze the sodium composition. And although your number will fluctuate a little bit day to day, we from our from our testing, and and this is somewhat backed up in the literature as well. It's a relatively stable number so if oh. you lose a high amount of salt in your sweat it's it's a relatively genetic factor there are things that push that number around a little bit but I must have had thousands of sweat tests now or at least hundreds and hundreds and my number is always within five five to eight percent you know it's up at 1800 milligrams a liter mm-hmm. so that's the kind of gold standard where you get a sweat test and you you measure the sodium loss but if you can't do that, you can we've got a questionnaire based test on our website which is free it's uh, you click through it ask you a load of questions about how you feel about racing in the heat and whether you get salt stains on your kit and whether you get cramps and all these sort of things and that can help point you in the the right direction or not i always say a good a good rule of thumb things to look out for are you know do you do you see white salt marks on your kit and clothing or in your eyebrows or your hat when you do Mm -hmm. long sessions in the heat because obviously salt residue building up quickly is a sign that you could be losing a lot. Does your sweat sting in your eyes yep. and in cuts? If it does, that's can be a sign. It's quite salty. Um, do you get low blood pressure after racing and training in the heat? Hmm. So, you know, that orthostatic hypertension where you stand up quickly, get out of a chair and feel all dizzy and lightheaded. That, oh, that, can, cool. be due to, okay. that can be due to low blood volume, which, which can also be, which can be linked to low electrolyte levels or huh. uh, lots of electrolyte loss. Um, i've camps. had that, I've
0: had those symptoms and i've never i've just, and i've had them after long training sessions in the heat and i' like oh just you know I'm just a little bit tired i i didn't uh, I never uh, put those two things together, so that's really interesting to hear
1: yeah that's that's one that that was a big one for me i would i thought it was fairly normal because when you 've only got an n of one experience when you're a teenage athlete or whatever, I thought it was right. pretty normal that you you got up off the couch after a training session and felt all dizzy for a moment, but seemingly this is not a thing you know, and it doesn't huh. happen to me a lot anymore because I replace a lot more salt when I'm. When I'm, um... interestingly, there's a whole cohort of people that we interface with at Precision Hydration who are not necessarily athletes, but they suffer with a condition called POTS, P-O-T-S, which is uh, uh, postural orthostatic hypertension. I think it is, and they they basically suffer with low, chronically low blood pressure. And so they drink very, very strong electrolyte drinks all the time to help them keep their blood pressure up. So the health advice for them is totally contrary to the average person. It's like eat loads hmm. of salt, drink loads of salt, salty drinks to keep your blood volume up. And so we've learned a lot about that through through this. But I always say to athletes now, that's a pretty good sign. If you've done long sessions in the heat and feel a bit dizzy afterwards, it could be that you're losing a lot of salt cramping is another one which is ever controversial but there <laughs> yes, is quite yes, a is. lot of evidence in my in my opinion at least e- even though some of it is case study and anecdotal to, to suggest that l- high sodium loss is linked with cramping it certainly was in my case you know i lost a lot of salt in my sweat and cramped a lot until i started replacing that salt um and yeah all of those things combined and, th- and then the other the other sort of more generic one is look, like, do you just dread racing in the heat just do you just mm-hmm. feel rubbish when you're racing the heat there there can be other reasons for that we work with a belgian pro cyclist who who's just done the tokyo olympic games and races in the tour de france and he said to us in a in a debrief once you know look before i had the sweat test and found out i lose loads of salt in my sweat i used to dread racing in the heat because I, I just knew that i was going to do badly but but now he has a customized replacement regime he takes a lot more salt than his teammates when he's racing and he says i've got full confidence he's just to put out a great performance in tokyo that's awesome you know where it's the way the heat and humidity is absolute killer
0: yeah, especially this time of year. So, okay. So let's say we, we, we've done the, the precision hydration test and, uh, you know, big shout out to Jason for, uh, for helping me out yesterday. It was a really interesting experience. I love, I love being, a you know, a lab rat because that's, that stuff is fun for me. And so, uh, it was, uh, it was a fun, uh, it was a fun chat with him and, uh, and a fun experience. And, uh, and he, uh, cleverly enough, he, um, he asked me what I thought my, my concentration was, cause you know, I've, I've had this chat with you yeah. before and I've talked to other folks. And so I have a, a an idea of what it should have been. And, uh, and I was like, Jason, I think I'm right in the middle. Like I basically based on the symptoms and everything, I'm like, I'm not, I don't think I'm a very high sweater. Definitely not a low sweater. My dog loves me Mm -hmm. when I come home from, uh, from a run. Um, but, uh, I'm like, I think I'm like spot in the middle. I'm like, what's, what's the mean? He's like, yeah, it's right around a thousand milligrams. So we did the test and he's like, you ready. You want to see how close you were? Like, yeah, 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 let's show me, show me. And so it was a thousand fifty. Yeah. There you go. So I was like, yeah, it was like spot on. Yeah, um, which always, you know, makes me feel makes me feel special. But uh, um, so now I have my number, and we don't need to use me; we can use anyone else. But uh, now that you have a number, um, once you have a number of the sweat concentration, what's your goal when you're when you're hydrating? Are you just trying to consume fluid with the identical concentration? Are you? Are there any times that you want to go lower or you want to go higher? What's the thinking there?
1: Yeah. It's it's a good question, um, a common question for us as well. I would say that if if you want to take a really simplistic view on it, what you would say is, okay, you're a thousand milligrams per liter, roughly. As it happens, mm-hmm. we have a drink that's about a thousand milligrams per liter, so it's kind of close to one to one ratio. So mm-hmm. if you drank a cup of, if you drank a bottle of that, that's going to be like putting. Sodium and fluid wise a bottle of sweat back into the system, so it makes mm-hmm. intuitive sense and i don 't think that 's a bad starting point for you know moderate endurance activities i think when you're when the when the conditions are cold and when you 're not sweating a lot um, or when you 're going for a short session there 's actually no need to replace either any electrolytes or you could probably get away with replacing much less because basically you 're going to accrue a small deficit during that session or that race or whatever. But then you're going to be able to you're you're going to naturally replace it afterwards with the foods you eat and and you know, the fluids you drink and it's not a big problem. So you, sure. for example, so using myself as an example just so I can fall back on that, I have very I have almost double the sodium in my sweat. But on a cool day, I'll I'll just probably throw a 500 milligram tab in my water if I'm going for a longish bike ride because that helps to take the edge off my losses but loss of sweat and sodium on a cool day is not the big performance limiter or the big recovery limiter sure then though coming to the other end of it when it is hot and humid and i'm going out for several hours i will definitely drink quite a lot of the 1500 because all of a sudden there becomes a point where loss of fluid and sodium is my achilles heel and i would say for you the majority of the time the thousand milligram is going to be your go-to for longer and hotter training sessions because although you're not going to drink you know your aim shouldn't be to drink a one-to-one ratio of what you've sweated out so if you sweat out three liters for example in a two-hour session you might replace 1.5 let's say mm-hmm. at least then you're replacing a decent proportion of, of what you've lost so that's always a good starting point and then it's as ever with with anything in, in endurance sports is refined with a good old dose of trial and error. Mm-hmm. You know, we've what what we've seen with a couple of athletes recently is we've we've been doing some analysis of Ironman nutrition plans with different athletes. And a couple no and actually this was an example from an ultra runner. We had a guy who did a 100k, so like a 62-mile ultra run, took him about 9 hours and he was fourth placed in the race. So it's a good level he's racing at. Okay. Yeah. He 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 was similar to you, so he's kind of a thousand milligram guy for for sweat sodium. He chose to drink the fifteen hundreds in that race, but titrate it with some water. So overall, he drank roughly. Mm-hmm. I think it was eight hundred and fifty milliliters per hour for nine hours. He drank a good bit of that on a run. That's was, really
0: that's really high. That's good. It's really
1: good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, he did well and and finished strongly as a result. Um, he, he drank about two thirds of that was pH 1500, but then he had about a third of it water because he felt like having a slightly stronger drink, but then a bit of water to balance it out. He could use his taste buds and see how he felt. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a good approach. The other approach would have been to just drink the thousand milligram stuff all the way through, you know? So there's, it's horses for courses when it comes to how you approach it, but I would say it's you're aiming to replace a proportion if an interesting thing is if you're replacing it at roughly the similar concentration to which it's leaving the body i think it helps you to enable to rely on the instincts of thirst and stuff more because you're giving the body a chance to be more homeostatically balanced and so rather than because if you just pour loads of water in you know eventually you're diluting yourself and then your sense of thirst is going to go out of whack Mm -hmm because your sense of thirst is going to be blunted because your blood sodium levels aren't rising. At the same time, if you have a drink which is way too strong, it's going to make you feel excessively thirsty, and still you're going to probably pee a lot because you're going to be over-salting and over-drinking
2: mm-hmm. and
1: just you know basically overloading the body, so the body's going to want to dump a lot of that fluid. So as a rule of thumb, starting somewhere in the ballpark of what your sweat-sodium concentration is in terms of loss, uh, in terms of replacement, is a good... Thing, and then you, you you adjust from there.
0: Got it. Got it. So oh, um, what about uh, what about preload? So we, we hear some coaches advocate uh, preloading with sodium the night before the morning of, let's say, a very long session or a race, especially in hot conditions. What's your position on that?
1: I'm quite a big fan of that because I think the athlete's default position is to drink loads of water before a big event, especially if it's in the heat. And that can be a mistake because you can create that sort of dilutional hypernatremia effect in advance of the event. Mm-hmm. There is some solid science to demonstrate. You know, athletes' blood samples taken from athletes at the start of ultra marathons have shown a, a significant portion of people already a little bit hypernatremic at the start line. And the only the only plausible answer for that really is they've they've drunk too much water because they're afraid of getting dehydrated in the event. So I like the concept of having half a liter of a a strong electrolyte drink the night before a big race mm-hmm. and half a litre an hour or two before the start as well, because that's the kind of final top up of the tanks. So you, you, you can't sodium load effectively as you can carbo load, you know, for days before yes. an event yes. because your kidneys will just kick out all of the extra. You know, you can't, you, there's no way to store it effectively in the body. So the, the idea with hydration is to be topped up, but you can't kind of be better than, you can't be super compensated. Like with glycogen, you, there's an element of a bit of supercompensation that can mm-hmm.
0: go on. That's a really that's an excellent point because I do think that um, that there are folks who th- who think of them as as sort of you know parallels, uh, carbo loading and sodium loading, and they, they they try to follow similar protocols. So that's that's a really important distinction, I think, Andy. Thank you for that. Um, so uh, I think that's that's a pretty good place to uh, to leave sodium. I probably have more questions for you, but uh, also trying to be a little bit mindful of time. Uh, and I do want to touch on the third lever, and I also really kind of want to talk about the fourth half lever as well. But uh, let's talk about yeah. uh, carbohydrates for a little bit, um, and maybe um, we've we have talked quite a bit about carbs on the show in the past, uh, although it probably has been some time. So the role of carbohydrates in in fueling and Activities, I think it's pretty. That one, I think, has been pretty much put to bed. Um, I don't, yeah. Uh, I think it's it's not super worth debating right now. But uh, what is the precision hydration take on uh, on carbohydrates? And I know last time you were on the show, uh, we spoke a little bit about decoupling um, carb intake from fluid intake. Um, so why don't we start there and and um, tell us if if that's still your position, if that's if that has evolved in any way? Um, first yeah. of all, maybe define decoupling for for folks uh for folks listening
1: yeah for sure so that that thing about decoupling carbs from fluids essentially that came that's come about because we typically have seen a lot of athletes reporting gi distress when they've tried to take all of what they need for an event all three levers sodium fluid and calories in one bottle so you effectively a a bottle with lots of carbs in it some fluids some electrolytes the, the reason i don't that can work for short duration activities when i say short i'm talking about probably like 90 minutes less than 2 hours type thing in in endurance where the the, the unless it's it's savagely hot and humid the main limiting factor is always going to be carbohydrate availability
2: mm-hmm.
1: in in terms of the, the fueling perspective so a strong a strong carb drink is pretty good if you're running a fast marathon or doing an Olympic distance triathlon because you get some fluids with it, you get some electrolytes with it, which help mitigate any of those losses. But really what you're doing is delivering a lot of carbs quickly into the bloodstream, which is what Mm -hmm. you need to do. So I think carb drinks work in that respect really well. When you go long, and especially when it's hot, those three, you want to pull the three levers independently based on how you're feeling. And the fact that on a hot day, you might be, you might need three times the fluid that you need on a cold day. Yeah. Now, if you've got all your fluids in one bottle, you do not want to be drinking all of a sudden, you know, like three times the amount of carbs, because that will make you sick. Totally. And so that's, that's where I start to think actually, it's better to go back to like water or an electrolyte drink in your bottles and carbs from gels, chews, bars, whatever the preferred easy digestible source of carbs is and when it comes to the amount of carbs interestingly this is where science and practicality like agree a lot more than say with hydration in in the fact that essentially you know something in the region of 30 40 grams of carbs per hour for shorter endurance events stepping Mm -hmm. it up to 50 60 70 grams an hour and medium to long events in that two to four hour time frame is good and then beyond that Ninety, and we're even these days talking 100, 120 one hundred and twenty. I've seen one hundred and forty grams thrown around, wow. you know, for grams of carbohydrate per hour in really long, intense events. And and so, we we've actually built a, what we call a quick carb calculator on our website, a bit like the the fueling planner because the, the hydration planner because we were getting so many questions about this from athletes, and that's a, that's kind of a good resource just to click through. It takes literally twenty seconds because you you say what sport you're doing what intensity, what duration and it will spit out a recommendation of carbs per hour and and as ever that's only a that's only a, a sort of a one, that's a snapshot idea but it gives you the, it puts you in the zone where you need to be essentially is it like 30, 60 to 90, 60, 60 to 90 or 90 plus grams of carb per hour Got it. Uh, and I, I do think that that's something which a lot of athletes would do well to engage with because overall uh, again you, you know me I don't like generic advice but in general i would say one of the one of the fundamentals that i've seen in the last few years with people doing long endurance events is the elites tend to do better with hitting the higher fueling numbers than people you know age group athletes and that sort of thing now arguably yeah. elite athletes are going at a harder rate and so warrant of a much higher carbohydrate intake, but I would say that I see more people under underfueling in an Iron Man than overfueling, potentially.
0: For sure for sure also i think the the fact that elites can their their race times are so much shorter so they 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 you know while their intensities are, are longer there's i think there is some some work showing that you know as you go longer and longer and longer your your gut's ability to to absorb carbohydrate degrades so if we're talking degrades, about you know yeah. an elite doing an eight hour or an age grouper doing a 16 hour and just hitting that cutoff there's like that's a world of difference between what's happening in your gi track between eight and 16 hours
1: oh yeah agreed and i think the other important factor that you know to sort of touch on there which you you have touched on is is like front loading we definitely talk to people about eating more of their carbs like early on in the bike ride in an Ironman, for example, Mm -hmm, while you get a bit more accepting of it. So you, you certainly want to, when we, when we look at an athlete's new nutrition plan post-race and break it down, we want to know how much did you have in the first third of the bike versus the second third, 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 and then on the run, because essentially most of the time you're seeing that going downhill. Mm -hmm. So if you hit 90 grams an hour in the first third of the bike, I reckon you'll probably be hitting 60 grams an hour on the run if you're lucky.
2: Yeah. So,
1: yeah. It's a case of like basically front load, start high, and, and, and it, it will naturally taper off as the race progresses because, you, because your gut can't handle it because you're just that. It's really difficult to put yourself back in that position when you're sat here talking and not doing the event, but we know what it's like late on in an event. Just You either forget to eat or you just don't feel like it. You just want to get to the damn finish and you, don't, mm. you just don't have that same intensity of focus that, to fuel quite as regularly
0: you're so, tired like your brain you, is tired yeah, right yeah it's it's hard to, it's yeah. hard so, to stay on top of all that stuff when you're you know yeah 10 hours deep or whatever
1: definitely so 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 the insurance policy to take out there is start fueling early and a bit more aggressively and so i think without being silly about it that's what we're pushing athletes to do a little bit is like fuel early and then it'll pay dividends later on in the same way i'm sure i remember reading years ago there was a a relatively strong correlation just between as simple as like how much food athletes managed to eat for breakfast before an Ironman and how fast their runtime was. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You can kind of see that there's a, there's a possible link there.
0: Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the, the new uh, fuel product that uh, Precision Hydration has just unveiled and wh- what's your thinking behind it? Because there's obviously, a, you know, a ton of thought went into your hydration products and that the fact that you have different strengths for different folks in different conditions. Um, did you take a similar approach to the fueling uh, product?
1: Yeah, the, the fueling products came out of... We've always talked about doing fueling products because of this three levers thing, you know, but it was really the COVID pandemic that brought it to the fore because we jumped on lots of video calls with athletes one-to-one over that COVID period when we were all in lockdown talking about hydration, nutrition plans. Everyone wanted to know how much to fuel with. We were talking about this 30, 60, 90 grams of carbon hour and then what we realized is folks are bringing gels onto the call and trying to read off the small print in the back. Oh, this one has 22 grams of carbohydrates. Then you've got to write down that. And then this one has 26. And then, so we thought, actually, what, what we want to do here is just bring out some really simple fueling products. So we brought out an energy gel, very neutral tasting. Mm-hmm. The if, if it's got anything technical about it, it is um, two to one glucose fructose ratio, just because that's got some solid science behind it with regards to higher levels of uptake. But, but it's just got, it's just simply it's got 30 grams of carbs in it. And it says three zero on the front of the packet in really big letters so that people know <laughs> if I have one of these, it's 30 grams. If I have two, it's nine, it's 60. And if I have three, it's 90. Yeah. yeah. And we, we've done the same with a, with a drink mix as well. So we've got a drink mix, which when you mix up half a liter of it, it's 30 grams of carbohydrate. And we'll also have a chew very soon. So, We're we're really excited about the products. We've taken ages over developing the flavors. The flavors are very neutral, a bit like our hydration products. I'm not a big believer in heavy, distinctive flavors in sports nutrition. I think it needs to be... I'm with you. I don't like the word bland because bland doesn't sound nice, but they just need to be inoffensive. They need to just go down easily when it's hot and humid and yeah
0: I have uh, there's there's. Uh, so I've tried to, I mean like everyone listening probably tried so many different products over the years and some of them are just plain disgusting and like and I just yeah. I can't imagine drinking or eating it you know never like in the first 10 minutes of the bike never mind you know deep into an Ironman like it was just like you know who I get I get you know you want some differentiation but some of the stuff is just plain unpalatable
1: well I think the reason for it as well is just it's just people searching for points of difference in a crowded market space That's it. You know, yeah. it's it's the same it's the same as all this stuff we have about hydrogels and plus the dextrins and all these other things yeah. which which are interesting and have plausible science behind them as to how they might provide a small amount of difference in performance but for me the fundamental thing is like not what's not what flavor your gel is or whether it's a hydrogel or a or it's maltodextrin or whatever it's it's more just like how many grams of carb are you going to take per hour how many do you need per hour because if you're not hitting that number if you're if you're not if you're taking 30 grams of a hydrogel when actually what you need is 90 grams of just the regular gel you're going to do better on the regular gel because the science behind some of these other formulations is is not is not exactly groundbreaking you know
2: mm-hmm. so
1: That's why we fell back on this idea that what we want to do is produce a simple range of products that enable people to transparently easily hit their numbers, 30, 60, 90 grams or 120 grams an hour, Mm -hmm. and also then build these web tools like our quick carb calculator so that you can hop on the website and figure out, okay, how many of these things do I need to eat? Because I think if you do those two things right, you're nine tenths of the way there to a good outcome.
0: I really like that approach because, uh, you know, as, as we talked about, like the, the cognitive load, like far into a race is, is high and the, making, making things simple really, I think, improves compliance. And this goes across the board of, you know, we talk about nutrition, hydration or anything else in life. If you make it simple for people, people are more likely to get to do it and to do it right. And so, you know, it's it's funny how, again, like we live in a very high tech world with a lot of interesting science and stuff to play with. But uh, sometimes the, the best solution is the one that's the most simple because it's the one that has the least number of potential pitfalls and obstacles, and in, uh, in you know preventing it from being executed correctly.
1: Definitely. I mean, I'll give you the, the example that I cited about the, the hydration earlier. The guy, our friend, who did a hundred kilometer running race recently, mm-hmm. he just he just broke it down and he said, right, I'm going to take, um, I believe it was one energy gel, one PF thirty energy gel every thirty minutes. Okay. He was having a little bit of carbohydrate in the pH fifteen hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, drink mix that he was having as well. And, and he was going to drink X amount of fluid per hour. I think it was like two bottles of fluid per hour. And he was going to have one energy gel every 30 minutes. That was the extent of his plan. Mm-hmm. And so that is, like you say, the cognitive load on that is really easy. The watch beeps every 30 Super minutes, have you earned a drink, take a gel. And he executed that almost perfectly throughout the race, and then the other great thing about that is, as part of the debrief when we sit down with him afterwards and say, okay, how did that go? Yeah, did you do that? Yeah, I did this, this, and this. I took that gel a bit early. He skipped a gel late on because he just didn't want to take it and then regretted it later, mm-hmm. which is an interesting learning. But then the great thing is next time we've got all those numbers and we just go, right, because I think we worked it out that this guy, Tim, hit 63 grams of carbs per hour through this run. and And the first learning point was like, okay, well, do we think we could up that a little bit? Because he was just, you know, not bonking, but just running out of energy a little bit towards the end. And we sort of said, well, this gives us a great base to say, actually, do we, put, do we push it up to one gel every 20 or 30, 25 minutes in the next time you go out and execute this? Mm-hmm. Because because what you've got is a, is a pretty reliable data set on what the person did. So you, it allows you to iterate. What I've learned with talking to athletes recently is when you sit down with them and ask them what they ate and drank in an Ironman, there's not a lot of recall there, yeah. And and if there's not, then it's really hard to then iterate and improve because you need to know those numbers. Mm-hmm. And and that's a lot of people who, sure. after the race is done and dusted, they don't write this stuff down. Then it's lost into the memory, and then you don't do another one for six or twelve months. And then how do you how do you build on that knowledge? So we've got a huge program going on at the moment. We've we've actually taken on a, a new sports science intern within the business who's one of her main jobs is talking to athletes pre-race, post-race. What do you think you're going to eat and drink? What you actually mm-hmm. ate and drank? Breaking down the macros in that and then giving feedback. And, and although it's very labor-intensive, I think it's a very interesting sort of enlightening service for, for athletes to be able to get that sort of information.
0: I think it's also very high value because, you know, we, we've, we keep banging on about how the value of hydration and nutrition and especially long course racing. And then if it's like, you know, sure, it takes some time to write this stuff down, but if you don't do it and then it's lost to time, as you say, then you really are missing an opportunity to, to learn and improve, which is sort of what, you know, kind of our sport is all about from, from the many, the many different perspectives. Um, Andy, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing uh, sharing this knowledge. And uh, it's always, you know, one of the things, and I keep, again, I, this is a, a, one of my favorite things to say on the show is like, I think I know a little bit about a lot of things. And then it's it's always fun to to learn, um, you know, more about a, a, a subject that I always thought that I had a pretty good handle on, and there was like three or four things that I picked out of this conversation that I was like, "Oh yeah, huh? that's that makes a ton of sense," and I never thought twice about it. So thank you for for educating me, and um, thank you for uh, for sharing your you know understanding of the art and science with the rest of our listeners.
1: Right, so it's, it's great to be able to chat, Michael, because I could talk about this stuff all day long. It's, <laughs> it's what I live and breathe, really. And it's funny. Huh? It is it is it's, yeah, and it's and it's great to get get your perspective on it as well because through these conversations, you learn what people want to know. Hmm. And then what we try and do as a, as a company is, is try and then answer the common questions for people to help guide the thinking um, rather than, cause you, the point you made earlier about people want to know numbers. They want to know an exact plan. They want to know this. I've, I've been through the full cycle of that, trying to give people exactly what they want. And, and I think mm-hmm. what's, what's difficult, what's challenging, what's more rewarding is taking people on a little bit of a journey to help them. It's self-discovery. It's like understanding what you need to know for you as an individual. Because if you for can sure. then get people to to actually understand their own numbers and go and iterate and execute then that's how you create a really good athlete
0: absolutely couldn't agree more so uh andy if listeners want to use any number of the tools that you mentioned and of course we'll put them in our show notes as well anything else we should add to the show notes like any of your social channels or or the website itself um where can people learn more
1: yeah precisionhydration.com is the best place to start we love hearing mm-hmm. from people directly we've got a great team behind the the emails so hello at precisionhydration.com is a is a great channel to reach out to us on you can book one-to-one video calls for free with the team if you want to chat great. um you can hit, uh, instagram is growing for us at precision hydration and the other you know usual social channels facebook and, and twitter we're actually at the sweat experts um but yeah just reach out go through the website and get in touch and read read the blogs i would say oh and the last thing sorry i would say sign up for our performance newsletter it goes out every week so put put your email address in on the little box on the website and you'll get hopefully some entertaining and interesting news about endurance sport in your inbox each week
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you again uh, for, for the time. And listeners, as always, thank you to uh, tuning in, to listening to us talk about this stuff. As, uh, as Andy mentioned, it is it is really fun for us to have these conversations. And I always uh, always enjoy them and learn something new from them. And if you're in the same boat, if you like what you hear, if you uh, learned something new today, please do uh, share the podcast, tell your friends, give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And uh, you know, tune in next week for another episode. Thanks, everyone.